Welcome to the Charter Cities Podcast. I'm Curtis Lockhart. On each episode, we invite a leading expert to discuss key trends in global development and the world of cities, including the role charter cities and innovative governance will play in humanity's new urban age. For more information, please follow us on social media or visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Today on the podcast, we have CCI's founder, Mark Lutter, back on the show. Mark is chairman and founder of the Charter Cities Institute. He's now CEO of Bravo Cities, charter city development company that's working on a new city project in the Caribbean. He's returning on the podcast to chat about his experience as one of the organizers of Zuzali, a new pop-up city and the corresponding cast of characters, networks, and community builders that together make a cluster of people like Zuzalu so special. We also chat a bit about network states and about trends in the charter city space more generally. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Hello, Mark. Welcome back to the podcast, sir. Thanks for having me. That was a very cheesy intro line, Curtis. Okay, we have to take this seriously. We've been given orders from our comms head to take this seriously and not screw around. So come on, you got to get into podcast persona. I am in podcast persona right now. I assume that this is going to be published. (laughs) Okay, we're going to chat about a lot. We're going to chat about charter cities, new cities. We're going to chat about network states, trends in the space, about your specific charter city project. But first, I think a good place to start is just to ask pretty plainly, what the hell is Zuzalu? (laughs) So Zuzalu was a experiment, a pop-up village, sometimes called a pop-up city in Montenegro over a two-month period. It was organized by Vitalik Buterin, and I organized one of the sub-events, which was the New Cities and Network States sub-event. And the, I think, idea is Vitalik was a little bit inspired by Bellagio's idea of network states, but also had kind of disagreements with Bellagio over what the best form of network state was. So Bellagio advocated a model where you had the very strong leader, a single cause area, with the ultimate goal being to negotiate for sovereignty. And Vitalik thought, okay, well, you don't need a single leader, you can have a community. You don't need a single cause area, you can have kind of a set of overlapping interests. You don't need to negotiate for sovereignty. Instead, you can work with governments to help them do better stuff. The other kind of framing that I thought was quite interesting was you can think of different types of human organization on two different scales. One is the time, and the other is the number of people. Some organizations have a very small number of people for a very short time period. That might be, for example, a dinner party. You're together for an hour or two, and it's 10 people. On the other hand, you've got some types of human organizations that are very long-lived and have a lot of people. That might be a country. The U.S. has 300 some million people. We've existed almost 250 years. And so this is Vitalik trying to create something with an intermediate number of people, just above Dunbar's number, with also an intermediate time frame, two months. A conference might be a high number of people, but only for a few days at most a week. A hacker house is a small number of people, but maybe for a year. So what is this kind of intermediate form of human organization? What does it look like? And that is what Zuzalu is. So you called Zuzalu a pop-up city, and we have a lot of different terms flying around here, charter city, network state, pop-up city. Can you just elaborate a little on these terms? What are their similarities? What are their differences and so forth? 
Sure. So I called it a pop-up village. Some other people have called it a pop-up city because it only had 200 people. I think pop-up village is slightly more accurate. When I think about a city, I think about number of people, right? Cities are to a certain extent defined by like agglomerations of people in a specific place and time, and that requires sufficient numbers. A charter city I think of as a city with a separate legal system from the rest of the country. This means that it has some degree of authority to make some set of laws that otherwise are typically reserved for the national government. The classic example of this is Hong Kong, which until kind of recently, it was one country, two systems, Hong Kong governed by common law, the rest of China not. It had a substantial degree of local self-governance, and then China recently cracked down substantially. A network state is a term that Balaji came up with recently. I think he would probably find this an acceptable framing, but he framed it as a successor to the nation state, thinking about how internet communities that instantiate in real life can develop sets of social bonds and negotiate with countries for sovereignty to be able to live in ways that they want to live. That is what a network state is. There are a lot of obstacles to actually getting a network state off the ground. If you look to history, people tend to be pretty firmly rooted and people like Tyler Cowen suggests there's even less mobility and willingness to move in recent times. So COVID may have slightly changed that a bit. So just taking the long view, the historical view, does the history of attempted network state type initiatives make you pessimistic or optimistic about its feasibility today? Generally pessimistic. If you look at an example Balaji uses for a successful network state is Israel. It's like, okay, look, if you have a religion that's multiple thousands of years old and you're facing literal genocide and you have the backing of, at the time, the world superpower, the United Kingdom, then yes, you might be able to migrate to an ancestral homeland and take control of it and create your own nation state. But like that almost didn't even pan out, right? Yeah, it was really, really, really hard. An example that I think shows a little bit of higher degrees of ease is Utah or Salt Lake City, where the Mormons settled it in 1850s. But the Mormons only became a religion in like the late 1820s. So it's basically less than 30 years from new religion to settling to what is now a pretty nice city. There were some similarities. It was kind of a very strong social bond. It happened during, oh man, my history is bad here. I think that was the second great awakening in the U.S. So it was a time of great religious fervor, and the Mormons happened to take it a bit further than most other folks. There was heavy persecution because the Mormons adopted a set of social values, including polygamy, that were not very well received by the rest of society. Joseph Smith was murdered in, I think, Missouri, in part because of this conflict. And so you have the degree of oppression broadly defined that causes mass migration. And then you have religion that coordinates that mass migration to a specific place. What is arguably the most successful network state over the last 50 years is Jonestown. How is that arguably successful? A thousand people moved to the middle of a Guiana jungle. <laughs> what happened after the words we can <laughs> elude over. But I think it demonstrates the challenge is to have mass migration, you need very strong social bonds. And very frequently, those strong social bonds often create the opportunity for bad actors to take advantage of them. 
just because right, by definition, strong internally coherent social bonds mean weak social bonds with the rest of society that allows predators to come and take advantage. And right, Jonestown, they did successfully negotiate with the government, move a thousand people, take over a part of the jungle. They even had an airstrip there. It was just that the guy leading it was very abusive and arguably insane and ended up killing slash suiciding everybody after six months living there. That's interesting. So this is kind of an adjacent point, but I haven't thought of this before. I think the Jonestown cult originated in San Francisco, right? Sort of. The guy was actually like a 1950s civil rights leader, I believe in Indiana, maybe Illinois. Then they moved first to Northern California. I don't think they ever were fully in San Francisco. Like I think their headquarters were always north of San Francisco, but they were kind of heavily integrated. There are accusations that they helped steal a mayoral election in SF. They were pretty well integrated into the San Francisco and even California power structures. They were quite influential there. Because that's interesting because I've lived in and been to a lot of major cities in the U.S. and in Canada and elsewhere. And San Francisco, it strikes me, has like a much greater history of spinning out some of these utopian cults than other places. So what would you say is in the air in San Francisco that creates this sort of dynamic? I mean, it might be a little bit more in the paper than in the air. That's an LSD joke. (laughs) I don't know. Definitely relates to like all of the 60s, the hippies, the sexual revolution that was very heavily concentrated in San Francisco. As to why it was concentrated there as opposed to other places, I don't know if there was a history of cults before then, right? San Francisco used to be a heavily Irish slash Polish Catholic town, and it really changed in the 60s. And why they concentrate there might have been good weather. It might have been some degree of romanticism where population centers might have been still predominantly Midwest and East Coast. And so this was the obvious escape was California. And it's more walkable than LA. So maybe they chose it for that reason. I don't have a clear understanding of why that happened. But then since the kind of at least 60s, there has been this legacy of cults of very strong, like weird social networks and social movements that I think have had a good track record for good. I mean, effective altruism, for example, is heavily influenced by SF and by some of the social scene in SF. The rationality community is very SF dependent. And that, well, could be very bad if AI kills everybody, but it also could be very good if AI helps everybody. So at a minimum, it's very influential. At the same time, anybody who spends a modicum of time in SF will hear stories about cult or cult-like phenomena, sordid tales of sexual abuse, things that obviously exists in all cities, but like the nature and phenomenon in which it exists in San Francisco, I think is relatively unique just because of this like legacy of cults and this legacy of these unusual social structures. Okay, let's tie this loop before moving to the next question. You were talking about how Jonestown is arguably the most successful modern network state, and you were tying that into your pessimism about the feasibility of its implementation today. So finish that thought. Yeah. So you asked me based on the history of network states, what is that tell me today. I think history is definitely one angle to look, but you can also look at how social structures are changing. And I came back from Montenegro and Suzali much more optimistic about network states. Maybe not the Balaji specific idea, but a more broad idea of what network states could mean and could do. And I think one way to frame this is thinking about the internet as a giant sorting mechanism. It has allowed people to find their tribe or whatever it is, 
to identify people with shared values and shared interests much more effectively than before. And you see this on forums where previously you'd have like nerd in a small town has no friends and now they can find nerds in all the other small towns and share a set of interests. In San Francisco, probably over the last 10 to 15 years, this has instantiated in real life. And I think now what we're seeing, which was helped by the kind of COVID shock, is that these communities are now instantiating themselves in real life in a lot of other places and contexts as well. And so Zuzalo, to a certain extent, was an instantiation of particular communities that had some real life component, but also a pretty heavy online component that were instantiated IRLs in Montenegro for two months. And so as you see this, I think, sorting mechanism take place, you also are seeing, to a certain extent, the lowering of transaction costs, where now you're able to coordinate with a large group of people much more effectively, where you can have, everybody can easily post, like, I bought a ticket to X place, I rented a house in Y place for two months, and everybody can see that. And that serves as a kind of social proof mechanism in a way that's much lower friction then like, okay, I need to call everybody and everybody needs to trust me when I say I bought the ticket or I can photocopy it and send like mail to everybody, right? That's just a giant headache. But the internet, as well as some other technology, is greatly lowering the friction for coordinating spontaneous action, social action. We saw this 10, 15 years ago with these flash mobs where it's like really cool, like, oh, we'll have 50 people show up and do a funny dance. Everybody will be confused. Like, what's going on? Pokemon Go a little bit. Yeah, Pokemon Go. And that was two different short-lived instantiations of this transaction cost lowering friction. And now we're seeing that work on a more interesting social level. So I guess to kind of answer your question, do I think we are going to get groups of people led by a charismatic leader around a single goal, go and negotiate with a government for sovereignty and lead to mass migration of followers to that place? No, that seems very unlikely. Are we going to see different communities begin to sort themselves in existing cities where you might have in some neighborhood, you get a bunch of people who are interested in X move to that neighborhood? Yes, we are already seeing that. One example is the neighborhood in San Francisco, where it's a self-conscious effort to just get a bunch of people to live in a one square mile radius so everybody can have that social network accessible and available to them. And I think we're going to see those sorting mechanisms continue to increase where people are sorting not by income and class as they have historically, but to some extent based on some set of shared interests and shared activities in a way that's relatively new and unique. This is kind of related to where you ended off there. So one of the core factors that determines the success or failure of cities over time that underlies the flourishing or or not of cities is a city's ability to attract talent. But this is often a chicken and egg problem. So to you, what pieces of a city, what different forms of agglomeration are most important in attracting and then retaining talent? Yeah, so I think what was interesting in Montenegro was for the two months of its existence, it might have had, like, I don't know, one of the hundredth highest talent concentrations in the world. We're seeing kind of talent agglomerate in new and interesting ways that previously were not thought about very much. I think historically people think about talent as like, okay, we can think about country level or we can think about city level or we can think about firm level. And now we're kind of thinking about talent in these new, I don't know, like social network way, the social graph type of way. 
And so in thinking about, I think, attracting talent, if you look at progress studies and think historically, there have been some places, times and places that have had outsized contributions to humanity, ancient Greece, Renaissance Italy, Dutch Golden Age, turn of the century Vienna. What made a lot, not all of these, but what made a lot of these places what they were is basically previously oppressed people being somewhat unleashed or unlocked or bringing some new set of knowledge. So with Renaissance Italy, what happened was the Byzantine Empire fell. A lot of the Greek scholars who were in the Byzantine Empire were like, oh no, went to Italy, brought their knowledge and books, and then boom, Renaissance. If you look at the Dutch Golden Age, Sephardic Jews being oppressed in the Inquisition. If you look at turn of the century of Vienna, it was previously oppressed Jews being freed and opened up. If you look at the Harlem Renaissance, it was African-Americans who fled the what was effectively apartheid in the South. And like it's not like New York at the time was some beacon of tolerance, but it was far more tolerant and far more open than like literally apartheid, I don't know, Missouri or whatever. And so you do have these openings of talent that occur when previously oppressed people are all able to move to a single place and have a lot of ideas. I think how you think about attracting talent to a city, you want several things. One, you just want it to be somewhat affordable. On one extreme, you can be Monaco, and Monaco is basically a retirement community for rich people. There's nothing wrong with that. Like It's fine. It works. But you're not going to get a set of great ideas or a set of great companies out of Monaco simply because the structure of it does not allow that. If you look at Paris in the 1920s, a lot of American writers were in Paris. You had Hemingway, you had Fitzgerald. Why? Because the franc at the time was extremely weak, so the dollar went very far, and the Americans were like, hey, we can live there for cheap and write our books. So you want this accessibility to the up-and-comers, the new generation that might be able to push the frontier. I think you're not going to compete with New York for amenities. You're not going to compete with London for amenities. So you have to think, what margins can we compete? And there, the margins you can compete are probably going to be attracting young talent by being relatively affordable. It's going to be attracting different parts of different scenes, whatever that might be, and figuring out how you can plant seeds within these different networks that scale over time. Minneapolis, for example, has a lot of Somalis. Why do Somalis from a very hot country live in one of the coldest states in the U.S.? The answer is because, I don't know, 50, 60 years ago, one of the Somalis went and had a job there. And then the next Somali who migrated was like, all right, my cousin lives there. My brother lives there. My uncle's best friend lives there, right? Whatever it is, then you just get this kind of chain migration where people go because that's where the social network is that can support them in a very new environment. Similarly, in thinking about talent attraction, it's kind of tapping into these networks figuring out where the talent arbitrage opportunities are, where are high talent people who aren't being rewarded for their talent because of, I don't know, high housing costs or because of bad governance. How do we tap into those networks and then bring those people here and start that virtual cycle that scales up over time? How did the individuals involved in organizing Zuzalu, including yourself, go about local community engagement? It was situated in Montenegro. You were in a place there was a pre-existing small resort town. How did you go about local community engagement? Yeah, so part of the reason Montenegro was chosen is because the government wanted to host Montenegro and there were existing relationships with the Montenegrin government that helped expedite passports for some Chinese citizens, for some Africans. They weren't able to expedite as many as they wanted, but like that initial engagement helped. Second is there's a new political party in Montenegro called Europe Now 
that is run by millennials, that is relatively forward-leaning, that wants to embrace some of these new cool ideas. And Zuzalu was a way to kind of bring a lot of people working on these interesting ideas like longevity, like AI, crypto, et cetera, to help expose them to some of the leaders in Montenegro and figure out, all right, how can Montenegro become a hub for some of these places? That being said, there, I think, could have possibly been more engagement. Part of the challenge with these events is it was a bit, I guess, exclusive in a sense that you need to know somebody or know somebody who knew somebody. It wasn't like this was blasted on the internet where anybody could come. And I think in building a community, that tends to be a good thing because there are bad actors who will kind of take advantage if you have social boundaries that are a little bit too loose. There was a group breakfast every day, and that breakfast would have been a lot less pleasant if homeless people were showing up to take advantage of it. That just would have detracted from the vibe. So the question I think here, and then two, it was in a five-star resort. Three, like if you wanted to be a full-time resident, you need to stay the full two months. So it wasn't cheap and it did have a relatively high time commitment for people staying the entire time. And so I think the, I guess, question is how to build that community while also building local relationships. And it doesn't really matter if it's just a two-month window. However, if it is a more permanent community that you want to build, then I think it is critically important to engage the locals. A lot of charter city and related projects fail because they don't take seriously local engagement because there's tension between the local community and the city residents. And figuring out how to not just allow the locals to benefit, but to make them feel like they are part of the project. They are in some ways the core of the project because you are their guests when you are working on this type of development. And figuring out how to build that dynamic is really critical to making it a sustainable, open place to live and not somewhere that has this kind of underlying tension of these foreigners are coming in and taking our jobs or not respectful of our history or whatever dynamic often happens when you have large migration to a new place. You mentioned the Montenegrin government a bit in your answer. So was there a role for the host government in the overall success of Zuzalu? I mean, expediting visas beyond that, no. So with pop-up cities, the connotation is almost by definition temporary. You alluded to this in your last answer. Are you thinking or any of the other Zuzalu organizers thinking about how to make such a community more long-lived and sustained over time? And if so, how are you doing that? Last night, I was in, I'm in Austin now, and I went to an event with two of the Zuzalu organizers who live in Austin, and they were talking about how they could bring some of the lessons of Zuzalu to Austin, which obviously has a much more permanent community. I think you see this also in SF with for example, the neighborhood that I mentioned, which is an intentional community effort in SF to co-locate a lot of people within a square mile. So there are people who are sometimes directly inspired by Zuzalu and sometimes in overlapping social circles and interests who are trying to think about how to build communities intentionally a little bit longer term. How do you build those social networks? How do you attract interesting people? How do you punish bad actors? All of that stuff that's required to have a functioning community. In terms of making Zuzalu more 
permanent. I don't think that's in the immediate plans for the organizers, but I do think that a lot of the lessons can be adjusted for something more permanent. And as I was discussing previously, this would be things like much more heavy local engagement. It would, I think, require having a project that people do want to live long-term and few people are going to want to live long-term in a five-star resort. It might be nice, but like you'd get bored very, very quickly and you'd also run out of money pretty quickly. So how do you create the environment that is much more amenable to this kind of longer term project? And then how do you see the community in a way that can interact with the locals effectively, but also be kind of a dynamic element that moves forward and preserve some of that unique nature, that unique culture that that community can bring? And this is just me. Why the name Zuzalu? Where did it come from? It's AI generated. This was by Vitalik or by one of the organizers or what? Vitalik. So most organic cities, they have, let's call it a Dickensian nature about them. There's often a tale of two cities or three or four or five cities, depending on the various social groups and communities that make up a city. And each of these different social groups, it fits into a different place on the status hierarchy. How do you think about keeping status hierarchies flat over time in order to maximize things like spontaneous encounters and interactions and all these other benefits of agglomerating a bunch of smart people together? Yeah, this is I think one of the somewhat unique things about Silicon Valley, for example, is that the status hierarchy is a lot more flat than many other cities, because that is a function of the economic environment where people can make a startup that's very, very successful in a short number of years. And so there's the possibility that even if the guys in college drop out or whatever, if they're smart enough, they could build something very successful. And so you might want to be a part of that. And that keeps the status hierarchy flat. I think Vitalik also, by the unique nature of his personality, is able to keep a flat status hierarchy. He's not really somebody who seeks power or authority. As he sometimes self-describes it, he's kind of lazy and so delegates a lot of work to other people. And that keeps a more open environment. I think for the first month of Suzalu, what happened is just because the friction was to enter was so high, nobody really knew what it was. And you need to take a two months off and that's kind of a headache. And where is Montenegro? That caused a sense of openness. After my event, which happened at approximately the one month mark, the Network States and New Cities Conference, I think that started to be a bit of a change at that point for several reasons. One, we had, I think, one of the first large inflows of visitors, like, I don't know, 100, 120 visitors. That weekend when previously the inflows were much smaller, so the large inflow visitors changed the dynamic. And two, we started getting kind of high-status people. The word started to spread, so some of them started to show up. And high-status people, even if they are have those non-hierarchical norms, at the same time, just because people want to be around them, that changes the dynamic a bit. And making sure that transmitting a culture to 100 people who only come for three or four days is just like really, really difficult. The dynamics of high-status people that people want to be around also change the dynamic. So I think you have to be quite intentional about the culture. You have to figure out, all right, who are we going to reward and who are we going to like socially sanction? You have to do those things continuously to help keep the culture set right. You have to think about culture setting more as a gardener and not as a carpenter. A carpenter will build a building. This wood goes there. This other piece of wood goes here. Where a gardener, you plant the seeds, you trim around the edges, but fundamentally you're not doing it. You're just kind of setting the conditions. 
within which it can emerge. A lot of it is dependent on just like the initial culture setting, who are the first movers. A lot of it's based on the organizers or the high status people, like who do they bestow status upon and who do they subtract status from and how does that set the tone and the stage more broadly. Your description of carpenters tells me you've done a lot of carpentry in your life, Mark. <laughs> I'm very good with my hands. This piece of wood here, that piece of wood there. <laughs> okay, sh shifting gears a bit. What is Bravo Cities? So Bravo Cities is a company incorporated, I think about a year ago, to pursue basically a new city opportunity in the Caribbean. What happened is two years ago, concerned resident on an island reached out to me and I was like, oh, holy shit, this has a lot of land. It has decent infrastructure. The government seems willing to do business, a good location. These things that I think are relatively unique. One thing that I perhaps differ from some other folks in the charter city space is the importance of location. When I think about new city development, obviously you need a lot of land. It needs to be unencumbered. And then two is you need population. And there's two kind of global migration patterns now that you can tap into. One is rural to urban in the global south, largely in Africa, where there is a rapidly urbanizing population, about 1 billion new residents over the next 30 years in Africa that you can tap into that need new urban spaces. The second is global south to global north. There was a Gallup poll uh, seven, eight years ago that estimated 750 million people would move to a new country if they could. And my guess is most of those people who would be open to moving to a new country want to move to like a nice, rich new country. I don't think that many Zambians are like, I want to go to the Democratic Republic of Congo. But a lot of Zambians might think, hey, maybe South Africa or maybe United Kingdom or maybe the U.S. And so there's this pent up demand for high skilled or just any skilled migration to high income countries, but the supply, the number of available openings in those countries is relatively low, especially for low skilled migrants. And so you need a location that has sufficient land that can also tap into one of these global migration trends and that has a government that's willing to have that type of development in their country and hopefully has access to decent enough infrastructure that you limit the initial infrastructure investment substantially, just because building an airport is extremely expensive. Building a port is extremely expensive. And if you can piggyback off existing infrastructure, you can lower startup capital costs by an order of magnitude or more. And so what are we doing right now? We've met with the prime minister a handful of times. We're looking to acquire this asset that we believe we can turn into a city and build some pretty cool stuff on. This is kind of tangential, but as you were talking about when you have these international migrants, the places they tend to want to move to are pretty nice places in the global north. That got reminded of some of the work you did as an advisor for some Hong Kongers in the Victoria Harbor Group, Ivan Ko and his team. It didn't strike me at the moment because the concept of a network state didn't exist when that happened. But would you say that was a bit of a network state project in a way? Yeah, I think so. I kind of joke that you need religion, but you don't really need religion. You just need strong civic culture with persecution. I haven't looked at the recent migration statistics from Hong Kong recently, but if you look at the ones from like late 80s to early 90s, because the UK agreed to hand Hong Kong over in 87, and I think it was almost like over 5% of their population left, and at times it was like 1% annually that was leaving. 
because a lot of Hong Kong residents either escaped from communist China or their parents escaped. And so they were like, wait, you're going to give the communists power over us? Like they tortured my dad. I'm going to move out, understandably. And so you have that persecution and you have that strong shared identity that allows you to coordinate it to a single place. And that was the bet with Victoria Harbor Group was that the new wave of China crackdown would lead to mass migration. And with a effective coordination, you could bring a lot of them to a specific place. I think the bet was incorrect to the extent that we thought we might be able to get more government support and expedited planning permissions and procedures, but we were unable to get that. And so transformed into a bit more of a traditional real estate developer. Your work at the Charter Cities Institute before Bravo City, so Mark's founder and now chairman of the Charter Cities Institute, I took over from him as executive director. So CCI, our whole thing is around poverty alleviation. That's not necessarily what Zuzalu is about or network states or some of the other new city stuff you've been up to recently. So square that circle for us. How are the two related? Are you interested in both, one or the other? Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. I mean, I think poverty alleviation is very important. A lot of people in the world are still pretty poor and making them less poor, eventually, hopefully rich, is a good thing. At the same time, I think the thing that I've been increasingly thinking about recently is just pushing the frontier. And obviously, this helps because new technology and innovation is good at the frontier. But what I've become increasingly convinced of is that the memes from the new frontier are also very important for everywhere else. And so there's this kind of joke in development circles where the U.S. will go and lecture you on women's rights and China will go and build you a road, which I think has a degree of truth. The U.S. does have some very good programs, PEPFAR, for example. But in general, our aid has been much less infrastructure, much less things that would lead to sustained economic growth, and much more might be described as broadly ideological. And I think part of that is just as the U.S. has become rich in a post-industrial society, we've forgotten and discounted the value of economic growth. And our ideology is to a certain extent a luxury belief that we now like to export instead of good, hard capital. But I do think this how memes spread. Another example is I don't think a single country in the world did human challenge trials for COVID. I don't think so, no. Where with COVID, it killed a huge number of people. It shut down the world economy for a year or two. And there were a handful of things that could have been done that would have expedited vaccines and therapies tremendously. One example is just the greatest success of COVID was probably Operation Warp Speed, which explicitly threw out the rule book for government procurement and all of this stuff. You actually saw some UK officials later get prosecuted for throwing out rule books. And it's like, look, you should throw out the rule book when like thousands of people are dying every day. Procurement rules, who cares? Let's stop the people from dying. And so you did have that large success, but something like human challenge trials, which at least based on a kind of first approximation is like, okay, people can volunteer to get sick. If you're young and you're healthy, the long-term risk of getting sick is very low. Two, you can use dosages to make sure it's a relatively low dose to the person getting sick. And that's a way to get information on the vaccines much more rapidly and roll out the vaccines more rapidly. And potentially, 
I haven't looked at this recently, but that probably could have saved tens of thousands of lives. And the fact that not a single country adopted it implies to a certain extent this global mimesis, this global sclerosis, unwillingness to adopt new ideas, even in very tough external circumstances, that has made me value the frontier, not just for the immediate returns of better technology, of better lives for rich people, broadly defined, right? Everybody in the U.S. is basically rich from a global standard. Those things are, I think, important, but also just like the mimesis, I think is also very important that I think is quite undervalued in just having a country at the frontier that has a somewhat coherent decision-making process and a somewhat coherent way of making things a little bit better. And so somewhat related, but distinct question, how is Bravo Cities both related to and different from the Charter Cities Institute? Sure. So, I mean, one is just the org structure. CCI is a nonprofit, a 501c3. Bravo Cities is a for-profit company. Two is Charter Cities Institute was established to build the ecosystem for Charter Cities. At the time it was established, there was a lot of energy and interest in Honduras. And the purpose of the Charter Cities Institute was to diversify charter cities away from a single person or a single country. And also to diversify to Africa, just because like if you're looking at where urbanization is happening, that's where people are moving to cities and Africa is where a lot of that is happening. And I think the Charter Cities Institute has been relatively successful on those fronts in terms of what kind of diversifying the movement also means is just bringing new partners to the table, as well as working with governments and new city developers to develop what might be a replicable model. And so I think CCI has also been helpful on that front. One of the projects that, Curtis, you're leading, working on, is in Zanzibar, where I see one of the key challenges as how we drop the price point for new city development to something that's affordable for the average Zanzibari. So one of the frequent critiques of new cities is that they're only for rich people. And this is true to an extent. If you look at many of the new city projects, they pay architects and designers way too much money to have really pretty pictures and then build it for rich people, basically gated communities. Not all projects. One of the projects we've worked a bit with is Ciudad Morazan in Honduras, which is basically a gated community for poor people because Honduras is a very violent country. And while rich people are able to throw gates on their neighborhoods, a lot of lower income people can't. And so how do you build a development that is a price point that's accessible to people on the lower income end of the spectrum? And how do you combine that kind of price point, those amenities with a level of safety where people can let their children play out of side, where they can outside, where they can talk on a cell phone outside, where they can enjoy a lot of things that people in safe environments take for granted, but in unsafe environments, you just are physically able to do it. It would just be a very bad idea given the risk associated. One of these challenges that we're facing that hopefully Zanzibar can help to unpack is how do we actually have a model for urban development that can be affordable to people at $1,000 per capita income? What does that look like in terms of infrastructure provision, in terms of housing, in terms of business? And how can we create that framework that also allows one to two percentage point higher growth over an extended time period to have the people be a lot less poor over time. And I guess just to clarify, one, two percentage points over the surrounding region. So if the country is growing by 3%, then you're growing at 4 or 5%. And that compounds and eventually you're hopefully a lot less impoverished, middle income, eventually upper income. So I think that's how I guess part of what CCI is looking at is like, 
how to create the model, how to push the price point down, how to make it affordable. And here, what we're looking at with Bravos, on one hand, it's easier because it's much more, we're targeting income levels that are much higher where the capital markets exist. And it's a bit easier to kind of structure and raise capital. It's a bit easier to pay attorneys when you have that average house sale that's an order or magnitude or two higher than what Zanzibar might have. And then I think two is just also having this flagship project, I think can help change how people think about charter cities. One of the challenges, and if you just look at any kind of new space, new industry, it's never validated until there's like a big public win. Sometimes this is an exit, like an IPO or a sale. Sometimes it's a obvious public success, like launching a rocket into space. But something needs to validate, like this is real. This is worth people putting their time and capital in. I think Charter Cities has really struggled with that, where there's been a few kind of incremental successes, but none that really blow the socks off of everybody. Like anybody can just look and say, wow, that's it. And here, what I'm hoping is that the project we're working on can be that, can open a lot of those doors, can have a demonstrating effect that this is a model that works, that can attract capital, that can employ a lot of people, that can make people's lives better. And then we can take some of those learnings to other places and help accelerate some of the projects already on the ground there. One of the ways I think about the distinctions between Bravos and CCI is this distinction between catch-up growth on the one hand and frontier growth on the other. So economists often invoke this like production possibilities, frontier, and poor countries, developing countries are very far within that production possibilities frontier. Richer countries are usually on or very close to the frontier doing a lot of innovation and whatnot. And so what CCI is focused on is those low income and lower middle income countries far within the frontier. And you can push towards the frontier as one of those countries, oftentimes by just emulating and looking at what rich countries did in terms of policy and governance and all these other things. And that'll kind of quickly allow you to catch up. Whereas what it sounds like you're looking at with Bravos is a lot more at the frontier, pushing the frontier forward, technological progress and growth in that sense. Yep, I think that's a fair summary. So you're trying to kickstart basically with this project in the Caribbean you alluded to with Bravos. Basically, you're trying to kickstart what amounts to a stagnant or somewhat not doing so well town. Talk a bit about how you're thinking about doing that. How do you start or should I say restart an economy? Yeah, I think the location we're looking at has fallen on tough times. Part of that's because of bad luck, some hurricanes. Part of that's just because of a lack of trust between some key stakeholders that's prevented some of the investment and some of the policies from being pushed forward. The key to jumpstarting any economy is figuring out what there is a comparative advantage in. This is the Caribbean, so there are nice beaches. So the comparative advantage is in tourism. What you need to do is partner with several large resorts, bring a lot of tourism in that keeps the government happy because their jobs created, keeps the locals happy because there's jobs created, it increases the number of flights because now there's more demand for visiting the island. And that's, I think, how you get that virtuous cycle started. And this location we're looking at, I think, has the opportunity for a lot more tourism. I think you want to pair that with what might be described as some magic internet dust. Maybe that's Zuzalu or similar events, but how do you get some of these very creative, very smart people to spend time there, maybe for a weekend, maybe for a week, maybe for a few months? How does it become a destination where you can attract these type of people? 
And these people aren't going to drive the economy, but I do think they can create this dynamic element that otherwise cities are lacking. And if you look at San Francisco, for example, less than 10% of people work in tech. And of those 10% of people who work in tech, less than 10% of them are doing something interesting. So right, probably less than 1% of San Francisco, which is arguably the most interesting city in the world, is actually doing anything interesting. And so you don't need these magic internet people to be a major percentage of the population. But having them as a small percentage of the population can help define culture, can help define certain industries that might scale and become much larger businesses in a decade or two. And two, can also help set the narrative for who you are, for what you're thinking about, because these people tend to write a lot. They tend to have relatively extensive social networks and thinking about the tech influencers, people like Scott Alexander or Tyler Cowen, getting folks like that engaged to help tell your story can serve to really build, I think, a cool, interesting narrative that can compound over time and become a very interesting place to live. Lastly, just as a purely selfish reason, I like living with interesting people, so I'm going to want them to move there too. Then long-term economics would be driven by, for lack of a better way to say it, immigration arbitrage. The H-1B applications went from 200,000 to 700,000, 780,000 over the last five years. They're capped at 85,000 annually. So you've got a delta of almost 700,000 people who want to be in the U.S., who American companies want to hire, who are unable to legally come to the U.S. So if you go to Google and say, hey, Google, you applied for 10,000 H-1Bs annually. You only got 2,000. Open a campus and we guarantee everybody gets a visa. It's a few hours from New York, an hour less from Miami. That ends up attracting a lot of people where you effectively compete with Canada, but on lower housing prices, better weather and lower taxes. Yeah, it's interesting what you said about maybe less than 1% of the SF population is working on anything interesting, and yet still that tiny fraction is able to permeate the broader city culture such that it's one of the most interesting and dynamic cities in the world. And basically saying you don't need a lot of da Vinci's and Brunelleschi's and Medici's to get Renaissance Florence. Most of Florence were poor people, but you get a few of them and they'll have surprising ramifications for the entire city as a whole. One of the perennial questions with new city developments and charter cities, and you alluded to this before, is the host country governments. A lot of the disappointment of past projects in the charter city space, like Honduras you talked about, largely been the result of governments that are no longer interested in supporting the projects. So how are you in this Caribbean project, how are you thinking about working with government to mitigate that risk? I think you have to work with them from the beginning. If you look at Honduras, Honduras, the initial law was passed in a post-constitutional crisis where the military put the president on a plane and shipped him to Costa Rica. Now, the president was trying to run for a second term, which was constitutionally banned, and Congress and the Supreme Court both turned on him. So it's a tough situation. Was it a coup? Military kicks out government, but military also kicks out president. But military also has the support of Congress and Supreme Court. So I don't think it's worthwhile playing semantics. It was definitely a constitutional crisis. And anytime you pass a law, especially a law as substantial as charter cities law, in the immediate aftermath of a constitutional crisis, there will be some questions about legitimacy. Two is there was one party that passed it, but it wasn't even the entire party that supported it. It was only like a handful, like five or six people in the party that really supported it. So then as soon as the opposition party won, this became a easy way to attack the party that was previously in power. And because the party previously in power, there wasn't even widespread support for this law, only concentrated support. It became 
I think, quite tough for some of the projects on the ground. That being said, they do appear to have reached a holding pattern where they seem optimistic that they can outlive the current administration and then get started with a new administration that's called it restarted. So I think that dynamic definitely exists. And I think that would be a strong indication that charter cities can survive even with a relatively hostile government. But it does also demonstrate how I think having the right initial conditions is critical. And so what this looks like in practice is one, just strong engagement with the government as well as potentially the opposition party from the beginning, figuring out how to ally yourselves both with the people in power and people who might be in power in five or maybe even 10 years. No reason to get on their bad side. Two is just creating a lot of local jobs. Democratic governments get reelected by creating jobs. And so if you can help them create jobs, the politicians will like you when they are up for reelection. And that requires focusing on certain industries that are much more labor intensive than other industries. For example, I was discussing with somebody and they were talking about creating a blockchain hub. And I was like, I'm not opposed to that. However, the guy was a politician. Like, if you want to get reelected, you should create a lot of jobs. (laughs) And that's not going to be blockchain. (laughs) Blockchain jobs are not very labor intensive. And two, blockchain coders are very easily able to get up and go to a new place if they want. And so you need jobs that are a bit more rooted, that create a lot more jobs for every million dollars invested or whatever metric you want to use. The third, I think, is figuring out how to engage not just the government, the local community, but also the business community. How do you get the business community in the host country to align yourself with your interest, whether that's investing directly in the project or whether that's investing in different subsidiaries of the project, align yourself with the business community so the business community can ensure that the government plays nice with you in the future. Last, there are some legal mechanisms you can use. For example, maybe the country is a signatory to a treaty that prevents them from expropriating your asset. Or perhaps if you are doing a large infrastructure investment, you can make that investment conditional upon a bilateral treaty with the sovereign that is investing that can help protect some of the kind of concessions that keep your city a dynamic place moving forward. So there's a handful of ways you can create these long-term interest alignment. You can give the country, for example, some equity interest in the city government or the management company or whatever vehicle might be appropriate for that. You have to be flexible depending on the specific conditions, but it's all about creating a shared understanding, aligning long-term interests, and making sure that every party to the development can meaningfully benefit from it. And so ideally, this charter city that you're working on, ideally, it grows very rapidly. And rapid growth is often tricky to manage. Scaling is extremely hard. A city of 10,000 people is a totally different beast than a city of 100,000 people is a totally different beast than a million people. So how do you think about scaling? All of this, I think, depends on the host country, on how many people they want to invite in. My preference is to bring as many people as possible because big cities are cool. But as we're ultimately going to be the guests and or partner of the government, we'll have to work closely with them to determine what those targets actually are. I think, at least in this particular instance, the immediate reaction from the local population, the government will probably be happy because the economy has been depressed for over 20 years. And as soon as there's some semblance of job creation and investment, I think people will get quite excited about it. Second, what we'd want to do is a targeted repatriation campaign. 
to attract people who used to live on the island and maybe have moved to other islands or to the US or Canada or the United Kingdom to come back as we create opportunities. And then three, I think, is making sure that there is some degree of local integration. And right, this obviously depends on the type of person. If you've got a banker from New York who has a second home that he visits a month, a month and a half out of the year, there doesn't need to be much local integration because he's not spending very much time there. However, if you have people who are relocating with their kids or with their families or even by themselves for a long period of time, you do want to make sure you don't have this kind of tiered system where the locals are in service sector jobs and then the expats and foreigners are being waited on by the locals. The short term, it's fine. That creates jobs. But long term, you don't want these class elements because I think that ends up creating a degree of resentment and minimizes the city from reaching its potential. And then lastly, I think you want to consider the urban for the city. And what this means is depending on the population targets, these will require different numbers of new buildings being built. And given the location, we would want to ensure that they're built in a manner to minimize potential future climate risk. That does imply certain types of building as well as density to minimize the infrastructure cost of those mitigation mechanisms. Other than your Caribbean project, what charter city project are you most excited about and why? Zanzibar, because the slogan of the Charter Cities Institute, like lifting tens of millions of people out of poverty, if we actually have a model that can return capital, that can help decrease urban poverty, we can roll that out and scale that out pretty quickly to a lot of other places and I think do a lot of good in this world. And just to end, if people want to learn more or get involved with what you're up to and the Caribbean project and all the stuff we chatted about, Zuzalu, how do they do that? Twitter at Mark Lutter or my email, mark at bravos with two A's, B-R-A-A-V-O-S dot C-C. Awesome. Well, that is all my questions. Thanks for the chat, Mark. Appreciate it. Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. We love engaging with our listeners, so please always feel free to reach out. Contact information is listed in the show notes. To find out more about the work of the Charter Cities Institute, please follow us on social media or visit chartercitiesinstitute.org.